Resilience. This is something we will all need to call upon when we meet life's greatest challenges. But why? Because if we are resilient, then we can better lead more enriching and successful lives. On today's episode, I interview the expert himself on resilience, Dr. Dennis Charney, only here on the People Scientist Podcast. Listening to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on nutrition, health, and medicine. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 39, where every week I arm you with some scientific evidence so we can all lead the healthy lives we want to live. Today's episode will be a bit different of a format than what I usually do. If you are a first time listener to the podcast, normally I speak just by myself the entire episode and cite and explain different studies on a particular topic. But today is a special episode as I have the privilege of interviewing a guest scientist. This week I'm absolutely thrilled because I'm sitting here with Dr. Dennis Charney. He is a world-renowned physician and scientist well known for his work on resilience, trauma, and the use of ketamine as a rapidly acting antidepressant. Today we are discussing the science of resilience or our ability to bounce back. So as we always do, how about we start off with some core takeaways? Dr. Dennis Charney speaks to how our ability to be resilient can be explained in part by our genetics, but genetics are not our destiny because our environment and the decisions we make can help make us more resilient. The reason why resilience is important is because at some point, all of us will have to go through a trauma or devastating life event, such as a loved one passing away or being diagnosed with an illness. If we are not resilient, then we may develop depression, anxiety, or turn to substances such as addictive drugs. So our ability to bounce back from life's challenges will help us better cope with life and may aid us in leading more enriched and successful lives. In today's episode, Dr. Charney speaks to us finding resilient role models that we can relate to, attention control, facing our fears, and more as ways to help make us more resilient. Now, let's get into the interview. I am sitting here with Dr. Dennis Charney, who is the Dean of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital. He is also the President for Academic Affairs and a professor in the Departments of Psychiatry, Neuroscience, and Pharmacological Sciences. Dr. Charney has been studying the science of resilience for decades and is the co-author of the book titled Resilience, the Science of Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges. He not only talks the talk, but he walks the walk as he is a role model for many overcoming trauma and adversity. His accomplishments are a testament to how influential he is 
in the field of psychiatry and neuroscience. It really makes us appreciate the privilege of having him on the show today. So in today's episode, we are talking all about the science of resilience from the expert himself. So welcome, Dean Charney, and thank you so much for being on the People Scientist podcast today. Thank you for having me. So let's start off very simple. Can you define for us what is resilience? Yeah, there, there are a couple of ways of thinking about uh, resilience, and there's not one single uh, definition. Uh, but let me give you a couple of examples. One, if you've been uh, traumatized in your life or faced uh, you know, a great challenge of some sort and you did not get depressed or anxious in a major way or turned to uh, substances, uh, despite having those challenges, that's one definition of resilience. On the other hand, another one, if you've been uh, severely traumatized, uh, you were in combat or you lost somebody uh, that you love very deeply and you did develop symptoms of depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, but you recovered. That's another definition of resilience. Mm -hmm. So why do you think resilience is so important and why should we study it? It's important because at some point in everybody's life, you're going you're gonna to face defeat. You're going to lose somebody uh, you know, that you, you love very much. Uh, you're, you yourself are going to have to face uh, illnesses that you'll, you'll have to deal with. So everybody faces challenges in their life, and it's important to learn how to deal with those challenges and move forward. We know many factors play into resilience, such as genetics, our environment, can you share some examples of particular genes that may be different between those that have been resilient and those that have struggled with resiliency? Uh, this is still an emerging field of, of science inquiry. Uh, so far, the research would suggest that resilience is about as genetic as vulnerability to anxiety and depression. However, uh, genes are not destiny. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that you can make yourself a more resilient person. In other words, you can even train yourself to be more resilient. In, in terms of the neurochemistry of resilience, there's some evidence uh, that certain neurochemicals may be involved, uh, even on a genetic basis. Uh, one neurochemical is called neuropeptide Y. Uh, that's a peptide or protein uh, that's found in uh, all of us. Uh, particularly in our brain. There's a lot of evidence that neuropeptide Y acts as a anxiolytic. In other words, it reduces anxiety. Uh, we have found uh, through uh, research with Navy SEALs and uh, what's called the Delta Force in the Army that, uh, and these are very resilient individuals, that the higher neuropeptide Y went up under stress, uh, the better they did. So it raised the possibility that maybe neuropeptide uh, Y could be related to resilience. So in fact, over the last several years, our research group here uh, at Mount Sinai, we've had neuropeptide Y made um, so that we could give it to human beings. Uh, We've begun to give it to uh, healthy volunteers and also people who suffer from PTSD to see if it is a naturally occurring uh, 
anxiolytic or neuropeptide that reduces anxiety. So we're still in the middle of that research and we'll see. Uh, turns out the neuropeptide Y gene uh, that codes for the making of neuropeptide Y uh, may be uh, working better in those who are resilient versus those who are not. So it's an active area of research. That's fascinating in that you're already in the phase one of the clinical trial. That's, That's great. Right. How about specific brain regions? Do we know if any are involved in resilience? Uh, There may be. uh, That there are parts of the brain that used to be called the limbic part of the brain or what we call subcortical regions. Uh, The brain's kind of brain regions in the the, the middle of the brain. Regions such as the amygdala and the uh, which is involved in the regulation of fear among other things and the hippocampus which is another brain regions which is involved in the, the encoding of memories. Since PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, does involve uh, dealing with fear and doesn't, does involve with the encoding of frightening or traumatic memories, uh, those are two brain regions that on, are on one hand are involved in post-traumatic stress, uh, stress disorder, but on the other hand seem to be involved in resilience. In addition, another part of the brain, which is more of the front part of the brain, which we call the prefrontal cortex, which interacts with the lower parts of the brain that I just mentioned, uh, may also be involved in resilience and, on the other hand, post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, the next topic we're going to cover is that what can we implement, or starting today, what can we do to make ourselves more resilient? But before I jump into that, I think it is important to mention to everyone that Dean Charney himself is a testament to the suggestions that he is about to provide us. He is a survivor of a devastating trauma and had to employ some of his own strategies in order to overcome adversity. If you want to hear his story of resilience, you can tune into a fantastic podcast. It is Mount Sinai's own podcast called Road to Resilience. That podcast details the stories of individuals that overcame hardship in their life. Dean Charney himself in episode one details his story and how he overcame his trauma. I would love it, Dean Charney, if you could detail how you overcame your trauma or strategies that you implemented or suggestions for the audience on how they can be more resilient starting today. Sure. So maybe I could start with uh, some of the work we have done to study resilience. My colleague and I, uh, Steve Southwick, who's a professor at Yale, and we started this work when we were both at Yale, uh, 20, 25 years ago, we decided to learn more about resilience. And, And the reason we did that is we felt if we could learn about what makes people more resilient, uh, we might be able to come up with ways of developing better treatments for patients with post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. But you know, at that point, we weren't sure what constituted resilient people, how did they become resilient, we really didn't know. So we decided to study resilient people who had overcome serious trauma in their life. So over many years, we've had the privilege of doing that. We studied Navy SEALs um, and the Delta Force in the Army, victims of earthquakes, people who were born with congenital disease, individuals who grew up in poverty and were sexually and physically abused. Uh, We also got to know uh, 
POWs, prisoners of war from the Vietnam War, who were held in solitary confinement for years and were heavily tortured for many years. And many of them came out very strong. And John McCain, the former senator uh, from Arizona, is the most famous uh, uh, POW. So we started out not knowing. We were a blank slate. And we interviewed all these different kinds of people. And ultimately, they started telling us the same thing of what constituted resilience and uh, mastering uh, among life's greatest challenges. And we identified uh, 10 factors. There probably are more. Uh, but through all this work, we identified uh, 10 factors. And some of them include being optimistic that you can face challenges. It's not Pollyanna optimism, meaning optimism that is not justified, but based on the, the skills you have learned in your life that you think you can prevail when facing a serious uh, challenge in your life. We found that role, uh, role models were very important because they had maybe suffered from something that you were suffering from and they can provide you a roadmap uh, going forward, uh, support from loved ones and other people important in your life, uh, very important, uh, facing your fears, critically important. These were just some of, of the things that we uh, identified. And as you mentioned, we have published a book on this uh, called Resilience, the Science of Mastering Life's Greatest uh, Challenges. Now, I didn't know whether I was resilient. Even though I was studying resilience uh, over many years, uh, I was not um, uh, in war. Um, I did not had not faced major challenges in my own life. So I wasn't sure. You never know until you're faced with something. Uh, so what, what happened to me uh, a little over three years ago was that a, a former faculty member at Mount Sinai that had been terminated for scientific misconduct seven years prior to what happened to me, uh, tracked me down and shot me with a shotgun from a very close range. And luckily, you know, I didn't, uh, he didn't hit me at places that could have uh, ended my life, but it was close. And I, I ended up being hospitalized at Mount Sinai in the intensive care unit uh, uh, for a number of days and so forth. So I had to deal with that. And so I looked upon the research that we had done and used some of the techniques based on our own research and the people uh, that we had studied and come to uh, admire. And I found out a couple of things. Uh, I found out the the components and factors related to resilience uh, were valid, at least for me. And I found it was helpful uh, to me in overcoming my own uh, serious trauma in terms of my own recovery. Wow. As I said, he not only talks the talk, but walks the walk and found that these strategies that he suggests really do help. There were two strategies in particular that I thought were really interesting, if you could elaborate upon. One of them was how we need to face our fears. 
And there's an interesting strategy I've heard of before that I thought might be somewhat similar, and it was invented by, or someone invented by Jason Comley, which is the rejection therapy. And Jia Jang had actually given a TED talk on it where it was titled 100 Days of Rejection. And he was tired of missing out on life's opportunities because of the fear of rejection. And so every single day he went out and he put himself in a situation where it was very likely he was going to be rejected. For example, he would ask a stranger on the street, will you give me $100? Or he asked someone who had a beautifully manicured backyard, can I play soccer in your backyard? And he said at the end of the 100 days, he was no longer afraid of rejection and it felt like he had far more opportunities in his life. So do you think the the face your fears strategy is similar to that in that we put ourselves in situations and challenge ourselves or what do you think? So I I think what he did is a little bit differently uh, different and I'll explain that. First, you know, facing your fears is um, is important in terms of resilience because we all have fears. And and we don't have fear we don't want fears to uh, limit our ability to enjoy life and have an enriching uh, life. And so we found in talking to all these individuals that we thought were resilient, we asked them, you know, how did, how did you overcome things and not give in to your fears? And what they described to us is a strategy that you identify what you're afraid of and you attack it a little bit at a time and you develop confidence after uh, overcoming a little fear, and then you move to a, a fear that maybe is moderately fearful. And then once you overcome that, you, you go to something that you're, you're really pretty afraid of, and then you overcome that. And, and before you know it, you have developed a psychological toolbox to face uh, fearful situations that you can call upon uh, when they happen. So for example, when we were talking to the uh, the Navy SEALs, who, uh, when they, uh, at some times, they're, they're called upon to get in a plane at night and to jump out of a plane at 20,000 feet mm-hmm. and to go into en- enemy territory, oh right? Yeah. And we would say, um, and you may have read about that, you know, in various uh, exploits of, of Navy SEALs when they rescue somebody who's been held hostage, you know, for example, mm-hmm. or they went on a mission. Uh, to get uh, Osama bin Laden and so forth, and I, we would say to them, "Well, how did you know? Were you afraid? Um, how did you overcome that?" And frequently they would say, "Yes, I, we were afraid, but we had the confidence that we were going to be able to do that, uh, accomp- accomplish our mission." And we would ask, "Well, how did you get to that point?" And they would say, "Well, you don't just jump out of an airplane at twenty thousand feet in the middle of the night without some training." <laughs> yeah. You know, so they would train themselves to get to that point. You know, they might. Uh, there are ways to learn how to parachute, mm-hmm. but you're parachuting in the day at ten thousand feet. Mm-hmm. You know, so you go step by step until you, you eventually could do something, you know, really dangerous. So that's how you learn to face your fears, one step at a time. Yeah, I think facing our fears is in my personal opinion, one of the best strategies to develop mental resilience. Because once you have overcome a huge obstacle or something that you were afraid of, for me personally, I feel very confident and empowered because of it. And then I feel like I can take on so many other obstacles because of that. Perhaps I'll share another example to provide some insight and some other strategies for our audience. I remember 
when I was 11 years old, I had a crippling fear of public speaking, as I think actually a lot of people do. It's a very common fear to have. I remember I was so terrified. I had to stand in front of my classroom and read a couple of pages from a book. And my hands were shaking so much that I couldn't even read the words on the pages. The words were getting caught up in my throat. I could barely choke the words out. And I was so nervous and petrified that I couldn't finish. I could only get through one paragraph. And I quickly rushed to my seat and sat down and just closed my eyes. I was so scared. So that evening I went home to my mom and I told her about it. And she's the reason why I overcame it. Because she said to me, next time it's going to be much better. She said, number one, what we're going to do is we're going to make sure that you are better prepared next time, which is one strategy. So before I had read through the pages just once and she had said this time, I'm going to read through the pages until I feel very comfortable and confident with all of the words that are on those pages. The second strategy she told me, which Dr. Dennis Charney already alluded to, is to start small. So she had told me to read those pages in front of my family. So a group of four people. And once I felt comfortable with that, then moving to a bigger group, such as my classroom, wouldn't seem so scary. The third strategy she gave me was to think back on how comfortable I felt when I was reading those pages in front of my family. So she actually gave me a photo of herself and told me to place it in the pages of the book. And if I ever got nervous when I was reading it in front of my classroom, to look at the photo of her and just just think of me reading it to her and so a few weeks later I had gone up in front of the classroom again and I really did well and the teacher was shocked because I literally went from a trembling mess to standing up there confidently and being able to read the two full pages in front of all my peers and that made me feel so good that I was able to overcome a failure like that in such a short period of time And I'm so glad that I did because I have gotten a lot of opportunities and accomplishments because of my ability for public speaking. You know, I was on the debate team and won a lot of medals there. I was the valedictorian of my graduating high school class. I've gotten a lot of awards in university for presenting my research. You know, for my PhD defense, I also was awarded the top dissertation out of the entire university for my PhD presentation. So that is just an example of how if we overcome our fears, look at all the successes that it can lead to. And can any of you think of a time that you overcame an obstacle or a fear or something that scared you and how good that felt and all the successes that came of it? So recall back on those memories and remember how good it felt and that will instill confidence in you to be able to do it again in the future and in the present of your life. I would say what you you were describing before is failure Mm. right so he he was preparing himself to experience failure you know in other words asking somebody if they can go in the backyard and play soccer and somebody was going to say no right right so he was dealing with failure and Mm. failure is another you know component of facing challenges in life and as scientists you know we fail we have an hypothesis, and we turn out we're wrong. So, so the, the experiment failed, and so, and, and that's a a, meta, a metaphor for life, that we all fail at things, but the key thing is to learn from failure, mm-hmm. 
to experience it, learn from it, and not get demoralized and be able to move forward. So I would kind of pair those things together, Mm -hmm. facing your fear and facing failure. Mm -hmm. And if you can do both, you're going to be resilient. That's right. Failure is life's greatest teacher, right? Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another strategy I would love for you to elaborate on is attention control and how we need to train ourselves to focus upon the positive and not the unhelpful negatives. The criticisms can be important for us to learn, but not the unhelpful negatives. So I think that's important in the context of today where, you know, we may receive many compliments or likes on social media. And as soon as we get one negative comment, that's all we can focus upon. So do you have any insight on why it is that we focus on the negative and how can we train ourselves to do the opposite? Yeah, so it makes no sense, right, when you step back and think about it, that if you've gotten many compliments and one person says to you, uh, you know, something negative about you, that you focus on that. Uh, so there's several ways to think about that. Uh, you know, it actually relates to a treatment for depression called cognitive behavioral therapy. And in, that, in cognitive behavioral therapy, you are designed to take a realistic view of your life and, and to focus on the positive when that's the realistic approach. And, and so that's essentially what people need to do uh, in the situation you do to describe. Look at it from a cognitive point of view. I've got a thousand compliments and I got one negative. So does it make any sense to focus on the negative? No. So you got to keep reminding yourself um, not to do that and, and take a positive view of, li- of life. And this is where one of the traits that we identified is important. And that is a sense of optimism. Mm-hmm. That good things you know can happen if you are prepared. Mm-hmm. I remember my brother told me once that if you don't have people disliking what you're doing, then you haven't made that big of an impact. <laughs> There's always going to be someone, right, that won't uh, necessarily be on the same page. That's true. I wonder if we could share another example of the attention control strategy. Like for example, in the Resilience Prescription podcast that I'll mention again later on at the end of the episode, the host, Ryan, makes mention to how we only start to see things when we pay attention to them. So for example, let's say you just purchased a bright red car. Now that you're driving around your bright red car, you're starting to notice that there are a lot of other bright red cars on the road. But you never noticed that before. And those bright red cars were always there before. But the only reason why you're starting to notice those other bright red cars is because now you yourself own one. That's an example of attention control, that now you're starting to see something more often because you're focusing your attention upon it. So for example, if someone unfortunately is very negative or pessimistic and they spend a lot of their time focusing on the negative, then that's what they're going to see in their life. But the opposite is true. If someone pays a lot of attention to the positivity in their life, then that is what they're going to start to see more of. So one strategy for attention control that a lot of people have started to adopt in the last year or so is to write down three things that they are grateful for every single morning. And the reason why we say to write it down is because when we say something out loud and when we write it down, It recruits more brain regions than just thinking of something. And the more brain regions we recruit, the better the memory consolidation. So that's why we say to say it out loud and to write it down. 
and to try and think of different things every single morning because the more positive things you see in your life and the more you're going to embrace that positive attention control. And it can be small things or it can be big things that you are grateful for. But that is an example of how we can start to train ourselves to focus on the positive things in our life so that that is what we start to see more of as opposed to the negativity. There are lots of studies to support the implementation of gratitude on well-being, happiness, and positive affect. So for example, in the journal Applied Psychology, Health, and Well-Being in the year 2011, Rash and colleagues had implemented a four-week gratitude contemplation intervention in individuals where every day they would have to think of what they were grateful for. And just simply contemplating about what they were grateful for every day for four weeks made a significant impact on their measures of happiness, positive outlook on life, and mental well-being. And there are numerous other studies that show very similar results. So we've spoken quite a bit about what impacts our ability to be resilient. We've spoken of genetics, brain region activity, as well as our environment and the decisions we make day to day. But one of our listeners had a really interesting question and they had asked, what is more important? How much of our resilience can you say is attributed to our genetics? And how much of our ability to be resilient is dependent on our environment or the decisions we make? I, it's hard to put a percentage on that. Uh, I would say most of it is environment and, and your life experience, how you're brought up, who's around you in your life. Uh, on the other hand, I'm sure we've all met people who just seem to be born optimistic mm-hmm. and positive. So there is a genetic component. But I, as I've said before, it's important that your listen is feel that it's not destiny you know genes are not destiny you can work at becoming more resilient and that will enrich your life Mm -hmm. no question about it absolutely so what do you think of the future for resilience research is there anything that you are looking forward to coming out or where you think the direction of resilience research will go it seems to have because since we started uh, doing the work 25 years ago it seems to be, have become more important um, mm-hmm. where there are a lot of people studying it. A lot of people are trying to develop methods to become more resilient. So, so quote, that's made me optimistic Yeah. because the more resilient people we have uh, in, our, in our communities and so forth, the better things are going to be. One area that I think is uh, important is to embed resilience training in our schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make it like part of a, a curriculum. Mm-hmm. And also another way of thinking about resilience is that you can think about resilience from the level of the individual. And then you can think about it at the level of a community. So if you have a lot of resilient people in your community, your community is going to be resilient. Mm-hmm. You can even think of having a resilient city. Mm-hmm. And keep expanding that, you know, further because I think that's uh, that's another avenue for resilient work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much sure. for allowing me to to interview you and for taking the time. I know you're incredibly busy, and I know that the audience will very much appreciate hearing your input and your expertise on the topic. So, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been it. a pleasure. Thank 
So that is a wrap, my People Scientist Army, for today's episode all about mental resilience with the expert on resilience from himself, Dr. Dennis Charney from the Icon School of Medicine. I'm very grateful that he came on the episode because he provided a lot of fascinating insight into how the area of resilience began in its research and how they looked to individuals that portrayed resilience and overcame incredible odds and essentially are looking to mimic their strategies that they used in order to be mentally resilient. It's really important for us to create that toolbox for ourselves because at some point all of us are going to go through some hardships and it's important for us to be resilient so that we can bounce back and continue to have an enriching and happy life. Before I close out today's episode on mental resilience, I have to mention another podcast that I think would be very helpful for a lot of you listening. And this podcast is called The Resilience Prescription. And it's actually created and hosted by my brother, Ryan Caligiuri. He is trained in cognitive behavioral therapy and has created this Resilience Prescription channel. And under this channel, there's actually three different podcasts. One is called Cut the Crap Podcast, one is Create Your Eight, and the other is Brain Jiu-Jitsu. And all three are different, but they all have the goal in mind of giving us strategies that we can implement today to help us become more mentally tough, resilient, and for us to build more confidence. So if at the end of this episode, you want more tangible things that you can implement into your daily life, or you're looking for inspiration or more examples on how you can be more mentally resilient, then give that Resilience Prescription podcast a listen, because I think it'll provide some really great insight for all of you. So that wraps up today's episode on mental resilience. I hope you all have a super healthy week and I look forward to meeting you here next week, the same time and the same place on the People Scientist Podcast. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.